This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance Plus, save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm actually Snavely being of sound mind and body to hereby bequeath the following. To my wife Rose, who spent money like there was no tomorrow, I leave $100 and a calendar. To my sons, Rodney and Victor, who spent every dime I ever gave them on fancy cars and fast women, I leave $50 in dimes. And to my other friends and relatives who also never learned the value of a dollar, I leave a dollar. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I don't know about you, but big spoiler alert, none of us get out of here alive. Today, to talk about what we can learn from the dying to live better we welcome the author of Taking Stock, a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life, Jordan Grummet, also known as Doc G. In our headlines, what are you focused on with your money? Today, we'll share an opportunity that could save you a year's salary or more. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to Steve, who's asking about which retirement bucket to dip into first. And then, because we're celebrating Tony Bennett's birthday today, I'll have my jazzy trivia. And now, two guys who are going to help you make sure you live well before you die. Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome back to another fun episode of the Stacky Benjamin Show. I'm Joe Salcihi, Average Joe Money on Twitter and Doug, it's funny you're talking about dying all the way through the intro. We're actually going to talk more about living today than we do on most shows. Big focus today is 
how are we going to wring more life out of uh, these years we have on this uh, planet or whatever planet you happen to be on in your in your brain? Some people I know are Doug shaking his head, but you and I know some people that are on a totally different planet. So now we're also doing a mental health show as well. <laughs> Maybe that's our next episode. But before all that, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. We all have smartphones and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they can also be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. Oh God. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five That's right. U.S. Cellular, a company that sells phones, wants us to put down our phones and to see what we find. Learn more at uscellular.com slash built for us. Tony Bennett's birthday, living, and how to wring more life out of your life with Doc G. First, we got a great headline, though, so let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. All right. Our headline today comes to us from MarketWatch. This is uh, Mark Halbert, who, oh, gee, you and I have talked about his pieces a lot. I, I think this guy generally nails it when it comes to finding the pulse of what's going on. And he has an opinion piece. Most investors still don't understand the relationship between risk and return, study reveals. Not shocking. Because there's a couple things going on, and obviously with Doc G, we're going to get on this theme again. A lot of us focus on the completely wrong things. This study shows that the majority of us believe the safest assets produce the greatest returns. Let me do that again. The safest assets give us the best returns. What's the time frame? I would agree to some degree that's true. And you know Mark Halbert well enough to know he's not talking about what you're talking about. With a little spin, I can spin that to make that sound exactly right. Yeah. You know, safety is kind of a weird thing, right? It's uh, what we're trying to avoid when we talk about safe or risky and risk tolerance kind of parlance. What we're thinking about is variability. You know, so I put in $100. How likely is it that tomorrow I'm going to look at it and see $100? Or might I see 101 or might I see 99? When we think about risk, we think about actual volatility. That's what we're trying to, that, that, that's what our brain is trying to process. But in the context of an overall financial plan, the safest things, which people would say would be things like cash or CDs or savings accounts or something that you can look at that has little to no volatility, the safest things are, in fact, quite often the worst things for you because they're going to safely run you out of money as it relates to inflation and just kind of the long time horizon that uh, that financial independence generally is for most people. So when I hear people say, well, like I'm good, 
I've got a nice safe pension. And it's like, well, that safe pension might be good today, but it's not going to increase with inflation. And we, we all got used to real comfortably low inflation rates. But even with those, your purchasing power gets halved every two decades or so. So if you retire and you're 65 and you don't have an income that doubles over the next 20 years, you know, you're, you're going to be kind of in, in trouble. So I think we have to redefine what safe means. Well, and I love the fact that if you want to be safe over the long term, you have to beat inflation. You have to. But of course, that's not where they're going. The authors of this new study, able to gain insight into investors' beliefs, he writes, by surveying a representative sample of U.S. residents. It's not just one or two people. Jesus is 3,000 people about their subjective attitudes toward the expected returns and risk for several asset classes. Large majority of respondents believe there's an inverse relationship between risk and return as opposed to the positive correlation, meaning that the more risk we take, the greater upside we have, but also, oh, gee, the greater downside. Like there is, how many people have you had come into your office that want, hey, I'm a risk taker. And then you find out during the first market downturn that they're not at all. What they want is high returns and no risk. I mean, I guess that's what we all want, isn't it? Well, I mean, yeah, I would take that too. (laughs) And that curve that you're talking about in terms of a unit more of risk versus a unit more of return, we can graph that. We have done that. It's called the efficient frontier. And you can say, where am I most efficiently getting the maximum amount of return for the units of risk that I'm willing to take? And I honestly think that we go about this the wrong way in our financial planning business space. You know, financial planners will say to a client, they'll say, Joe, Doug, uh, I need you to do this risk tolerance questionnaire and tell me how risky you want to be. Well, in some respects, like you said earlier, it's like, I'll take zero, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. For you the know, win. Like, <laughs> I, will, I will like zero risk and I would take, uh, you know, I'm not greedy, 10% a year. That's fine, yeah. right? Let me do that. That's what we all want. And so I think we do a disservice by kind of approaching it that way, as opposed to looking at it from the from the financial planning side of it, which is becomes more unemotional when you're doing it for the purpose that you're doing it for. So you say, okay, I have this amount of money saved today. I have this many resources that I can use on a monthly basis to add to my plan. And I want my goal to be achieved on this date. And you can do the math problem. And then you say, well, how much does the money have to grow every year for me to reach the goal? Because I'm not going to be able to save enough. You know, as we were talking about inflation, all that other sort of things, you won't make enough money to save all the money you're going to spend in retirement. If you saved all the money you make dollar for from dollar. the time you started working. Yeah. Yeah. If you saved all the money you make from the time you start working until the time you retire, you will not have enough money to retire if all you did was save it into a savings account. There's just not enough. You need compounding. So you can figure that out and say, well, I need my money to grow at 6%. I need my money to grow at 10%. I need my money to grow at 7.5%. And then with that information, you can then put together the right collection of things, stocks and bonds and cash or whatever, that are going to produce that outcome with a high likelihood over a period of time. I I think the point here, though, OG, is that as you notch that rate of return expectation that you want, when you go from six to eight, you go to eight from eight to 10, the C is going to have bigger waves. You're going to have this bigger up and down. And this study says that that's not the case. And what's funny is, and I like the way Halbert writes- That's not the case. That's not what people think you mean. 
Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. He said that, uh, note carefully, researchers are focusing on subjective beliefs, not objective reality. They aren't taking a position one way or another on what's going on, whether real estate is an example, in fact, safer than stocks. But listen to this. Real estate versus equities, of the many survey respondents who said they believe real estate to be safer than two assets, 77% also said they believe real estate produces higher returns. So people are saying that real estate is number one, safer than the stock market, and number two, a better investment. You don't get one without the other. Like you don't get, and I love the fact that these researchers don't take a position. They just go, hey, this is what people believe. And studies show that's not not at all the case. Some of that, I think, is a little confirmation bias, maybe over the last uh, decade and a half or so. Of There's just been a lot of marketing done, I think, on the you need to be invested in real estate side of the equation while the stock market has grown at 20% a year. I did some of that marketing on myself this last week. I was diving into Zillow, like you will, from time to time. And I went back and looked at my old house in Michigan. My house in Michigan that I sold. Holy fork and shirt balls. You should have kept it. I sold two years ago. Is up for sale again. Actually, they just sold it. The people we oh. sold it to just sold it for $235,000 more than I sold it to them for two uh, years ago. Two years ago. They probably didn't do anything major or significant to warrant that. Like I was looking yeah. at their pictures, Doug. They did nothing. Yes. Right. Yes. They just used the same pictures. I actually took the pictures when we bought our house. I screenshotted all the pictures from Zillow <laughs> and kept them. I took pictures of my neighbor's house beforehand because they they redid the inside of their house and i just put those on our zillow on our oh that's yes that's not good it was super yeah. nice and so you look at that and you go son of a biscuit i should have you know yeah i should have could have would have that right? would have been a safe return right in my head i go oh that would have been a safe return had i just stayed there i would have made a bajillion yep. dollars yep and in Five years from now, when people look back at the end of June's stock market returns of 2022, people are going to say the same thing about stocks. They're going to say, mm-hmm. darn it, in 2022, you know, when it was down a whole bunch, I should have I bought more. Yeah. And the problem with that is that you get that, you know, <laughs> your money's doing that, but then your emotions are doing it too. And the best way is, as you know, Joe, is have a plan and stick to it. Yes. If your plan calls for saving $500 a month in your 401k, put $500 a month in your 401k. If you happen to have an extra $250 this month, excellent. Save that also. You know, the best time to invest in your financial plan, whether it's stocks or real estate or whatever you're doing, the best time to do it is like right now. <laughs> you know, this is when you have the money. This is why I love the nature of our headline segment is because I think there are are also times when you need to pay attention to what's the right thing to focus on and Right now, there is something going on where you actually can make a bajillion dollars and it's not recency bias. Well, not make a bajillion, but claim a bajillion. Our friend and certified financial planner, Sarah Catherine Gutierrez, who writes a column that appears all over the state of Arkansas, has a recent YouTube video about uh, this program. And I'm going to play from the second half of first OG because she goes off on on the fact that people pay attention to the wrong things. You know, I just want to remind people, this is not like a save 15% or more on your car insurance kind of deal. I wouldn't be writing this many columns if it was like that. This is like maybe have the equivalent of your annual salary 
go away in debt. Like that is, that is huge. So I give an example because I want people to understand what a big deal this is. So we have a woman who has been paying 15 years on her loan, still has $80,000 left, thought she was ineligible for PSLF because she had the FELL loan, not the direct loan, a very serious technicality that would not be meaningful to most people. And so on a leap of faith, she takes action on this waiver, and lo and behold, one day she wakes up with zero on her account that the previous day said $80,000. Okay, that is how big this is. I have personally seen this happen for a woman with $30,000, with $50,000 and more. Like- she goes on and on and on about uh, about this and what we really need to focus on. And she, you can hear the frustration in her voice, OG, about how she's been writing about this over and over and over. And what she's writing about is student loan forgiveness, public uh, service forgiveness has been a thing. And as you know, it's something that's been a thing for a long time. And everybody knows the trick to this. Nobody gets it, right? There's all these little gotchas in this program. Nobody gets it. Everybody screws up once on their student loans. And so they're automatically ineligible. Well, during COVID, the government went in and said, you know what? We're going to change a lot of that. We're going to widen the number of loans that are available We're going to also get rid of some of those gotchas. So there are people out there who have made more than 120 payments to their student loans, and they've done the public student loan forgiveness activities, which we'll let people dive into, and they could have their student loans forgiven today, right now, because they've already done all of the requirements. And yet, as you know, OG, to Sarah Catherine's point, people are busy thinking, oh, I could make a bajillion dollars on real estate, and that game might be up for the short term, you know, if we're thinking about making money on real estate or stocks over the short term, it's up anyway, or saving 15% on your car insurance. And we're not paying attention to some of this big stuff. And the bad news is, and this is why Sarah Catherine is so frustrated, the deadline's in October. And when it's gone, this thing's probably gone forever. Yeah. I mean, anything that's worth doing requires a decent amount of work. (laughs) You know what I mean? And some of that work is reading a whole bunch of stuff and filling out paperwork and sending certified letters and going to the post office. And, you know, like it's not even work work, right? It's just annoying stuff that one has to do. And I think a lot of people would just rather say, yeah, it probably doesn't apply to me. So I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And like she was saying, like you're intimating here, it's like, I want to work really hard at figuring out how I can, get a side hustle going and make an extra $150 a month. That's cool. Meanwhile, you could work the same amount of energy and eliminate 80 grand of student loan debt, you know, or whatever. It's incredible. It's called the temporary expanded PSLF, which is uh, public service loan forgiveness. We'll have links in our show notes. Cause man, if you can take advantage of this, I'd love to have somebody write to me and say, Hey, guess what? But one year salary. I just, Found out because I listened to Stacking Beds. Just did it. Yes. Yep. And then obviously they'll split it 50-50 with us, right? Don't you think? Like a little finder's fee. I think they probably- Kinda like a contingency lawyer. Probably should. Coming up next, Doc G is somebody who, speaking of focusing on the right things, has worked for a long time in hospice, and this has been his life mission. I'm going to ask him all about that at the beginning of our discussion about why working with the dying has been such a passion of his. And it comes from things that happened in his childhood and chasing this, this stuff happening in his childhood. And he has had some fantastic 
last discussions with people before they pass away, which really, hopefully, is going to be not just a motivator, but also, believe it or not, because I don't find usually talking about death uplifting, OG, it's going to be incredibly uplifting. So coming up next, Doc G and what we can learn from the dying about living. Uh, But first, Doug, let's not talk about dying yet. Let's talk about some Tony Bennett. How about that? Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Today, we're celebrating a national treasure who's brought joy to millions with his vocal delights. Oh, no, 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 it's not me. I mean, I can see how you got there, but no, I'm talking about Tony Bennett, born August 3rd, 1926. He famously coupled with Lady Gaga for duets. You know, Lady G was often compared to another Bennett collaborator, which some say caused Lady Gaga to change the color of her hair to differentiate herself from the other person that Tony was singing with. So my question is, which singer was it? I'll be right back with the answer after I get Joe to dance with me cheek to cheek. Okay, pants off, Joe! Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And uh, the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money, and it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together, and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union lets you experience more from everyday commutes to your next big vacation. Their flagship credit card earns you three times the points on travel. And if you pay your credit cards off every month, getting points is a great idea. If you don't, don't worry about the point stackers. Get used to paying your credit card off every month. But three times the points allows you to get rewarded for wherever you're headed next. And traveling is so beneficial, whether it's to relax or see a new place, wherever you're going, Travel Rewards Card makes it a little bit easier on your wallet the next time that you travel. By the way, the premium travel card has a low annual fee of $49 and two times the points on all purchases outside of travel, meaning the rewards don't have to end even when the vacation does. The flagship credit card also comes with up to $100 in credits toward TSA PreCheck, global entry and reimbursement on an annual Amazon Prime membership so you can be grossed out by the boys like I was. Learn how you can earn up to three times the points on travel and more with a flagship card at NavyFederal.org. And by the way, 
If you're looking for your next new car or used car, there's lots of things to consider like down payments, interest rates, and monthly payment schedules. Well, Navy Federal Credit Union makes that easy with their auto loan process. Their application's easy. You can do it on their mobile app, online, or by phone. It's so fast. You can get a decision in seconds. Find out more at NavyFederal.org. Open to the Armed Forces, DOD, veterans, and their families. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Flagship rates are variable and range between 10.74% and 18% APR based on creditworthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal ATMs. When it comes to auto loans, credit and collateral subject to approval. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Of course, Navy Federal insured by NCUA. Okay, all right, hey, it was an honest mistake, you know, like cheek versus the, the other cheek cheek. Oh, oh uh, hey, hey there, stackers. I'm Song Swayer and Tony Bennett sound alike, Joe's mom's neighbor Doug. Bennett and Lady Gaga have a now famous friendship, but the story around the playground is that Lady Gaga was being compared so much to another brunette that she changed her hair color and changed you know, and it changed and changed again, so it seems. So who was that collaborator? The answer, Amy Winehouse. And now let's say hello to the man behind the new hit book, Taking Stock, Doc G. And a guy's no stranger to these parts of Texarkana, Mr. Mr. Doc G, Jordan Grubbins here. How are you, man? Good. I, I may be strange, but not a stranger. How about that? <laughs> and you know how well that fits in this community. I think that's why we get along so well. Hey, not to uh, kill our jovial mood right off the bat, but um, we're going to do it anyway. This is a heady topic. Do you remember the last thing you said to your dad before he died? I don't. So I was seven years old and I have a horrible memory. And I always wonder if this has to do with my dad's death. I figure he must have seen me and said goodnight to me. So I assume he came to my room and said goodnight to me because he left early in the morning. And so he went to work early the next morning before I woke up. And then he collapsed at the hospital while rounding. So that was probably the last I got of my father was that moment. The sad part is, as I get older, is the memories of spending time with him are fleeting. I just I only have these little snippets of time with him. You know, just because I he died when I was seven and I'm not one of those people who has like that elephant memory where you remember everything from childhood. But no, I'll disagree with that, Jordan, because it seems to me like the the time just after his death, like you seem to remember that vividly, like this regret that you have that he's gone even at seven years old. Yeah, you know, I felt like I was responsible. And I think this is very common in kids because we're still at that stage where we feel like the world revolves around us. So... Obviously, in my kid brain, this was a reflection of something I had done wrong. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't enough. If I had been, he wouldn't have died. And I I remember my dad had all sorts of stuff. He was a things person. And he had this woodworking area in the basement. He had some really cool stuff. He had this really cool pocket knife. I remember having a dream after he died, a week or two after, and seeing his stuff and feeling almost an excitement that I could have all his things, and then waking up and feeling horrible that I had coveted his things, and here I had lost my father, even as a little kid. And I remember that kind of guilt and shame really stuck with me, this idea that somehow I played a role in this. I I wonder if this kind of shaped your career 
because I think I see you not just becoming a physician like he was, but also this idea of working with people who are dying. And maybe maybe this is a very personal journey for you on as much comfort for yourself as it is comforting other people. Would you say that's true? Yeah. I mean, one of the ways I define happiness as an adult is it kind of depends on the stories you tell yourself about your past. So my magical story, the story I've divined, the story I tell myself about my life is my dad dying at such a young age propelled me towards being a doctor propelled me towards helping people and being part of people's lives, even though eventually the profession maybe didn't fit my identity as well as I hoped it would. I see it more as a heroic journey of feeling this shame and sadness at his death, turning it into a profession in which I could do good and help people. And then even eventually coming to terms with this idea that Maybe being a doctor wasn't the only way I could help people. And there were some other ways that I could get involved and build community and and do other positive things. But I want to halt on this idea of becoming a doctor and how it seems to me your early life kind of uh, precedes this, right? This idea of a profession around this thing that is such an elephant in the room in your life. It occupies so much, clearly how much, so much headspace for you to the point that you and I were at a Camp Fi which is a camp that uh, a lot of money nerds go to. Not enough money nerds go to, by the way. More money <laughs> nerds should go to these places. Even though we sleep on a mattress that's like two inches uh, thick and Jordan has to hear me snore as uh, we were roommates during that together. Of course, you were probably snoring at me too and I was, I was out of it. But we're having these conversations and you're crying, explaining this stuff still at your age um, and working with so many people, you're still crying about this experience from when you're, you're seven while you were talking about it. And I think, I don't know, I just look at your career from afar, Jordan, and I think you overcome a learning disability to become a great student, right? To be somebody who's an ace in the classroom so that you can become a doctor. You become a doctor. I think, okay, what could possibly go wrong? This seems like a marriage made in heaven, right? This is this is exactly what we all want. We want to have this purpose when we're in our early 20s. We want to have this thing that we're chasing and you're chasing this thing that is beyond you. It's this bigger thing. I'm going to help people now have the trauma that I had. And yet you get to Washington University and I'd love for you to tell everybody the story of what happened when you first got to Washington University. You get you have this weird ass introduction to, to somebody else that kind of is like this speed bump along this path to heaven. You know, it was really the beginning of my journey away from medicine. I, as you said, had dreamed this purpose, this identity that became my whole life. And I walk into residency, which is the training that all doctors go through. In my case, it was a three-year training, an apprenticeship in the hospital. And the first day, the chief was walking me around, the guy who was pretty much my boss for the next few years. And he introduced me to a resident that was on his last day. So I was coming in, the new residents were coming in, and the third-year residents were leaving. And this is the way he introduced him. He said, this is John, you're taking over all his patients, and he can't be hurt anymore. And I remember this phrase, can't be hurt anymore. And I remember being confused, like, what the heck does that mean? And of course, I never got an answer and it stuck with me until I learned a sort of trial by fire exactly what that meant. 
I was a second year resident and I was in the intensive care unit, the ICU, and every second or third night we would be on call as the most senior doctor in the hospital. Everyone else leaves, all the experienced doctors leave, and you're sitting there in the ICU with people on ventilators, with people dying of all sorts of diseases, and you are the backstop. You are the failsafe. It's your job to keep all those people alive and take care of them all night as well as admit new people. And I had a deathly ill gentleman who one of my partners admitted during the day. He was having respiratory problems. We had no idea why. And my partner left. And when they leave, they sign out all the patients to you. And they said, you know what? We have no idea why this guy's having trouble breathing. But take care of him. Make sure he doesn't end up on a ventilator. And of course, as the night went on, he got more and more short of breath. It became clear that he had to be put on a breathing machine or ventilator. And the process you do this is you sedate the person. And then there's this tube you actually have to put down their throat and you have to put it in exactly the right place to put it into the lungs as opposed to putting it in the esophagus and pretty much the stomach. What we normally do is we start the medicines, we start the process, but we also call anesthesiology, who are the experts in doing this. They usually come up a few minutes later and either we've successfully done it or they're right there and they help us. Well, I called the anesthesiologist. It took him forever to come. I couldn't get this patient intubated. I just kept trying. I was unsuccessful. I could keep the oxygen levels up by using one of those Ambu bags of things. If you ever watch ER, you always see them using. Eventually, someone, another resident was walking by. He helped me. We got the patient on the ventilator and literally flatline. He died right there. And then we did our best. We worked on him for 30 minutes. He died. And I called his family to come and imagine... I'm a somewhat new doctor still. In my first year and a half of training, I am sitting with a family of 10 people telling them that their loved one died, watching them grieve, dealing with that issue, as well as taking care of all the other patients who are still critically ill there. And I hadn't probably slept in about 30 hours at that point. The family leaves, and the next morning, I get interrupted during rounds by the secretary. She wants me to answer the phone. It turns out the guy who died had three daughters who were disconnected from his new family who showed up the night before. And I had to tell each of these three daughters over the phone that their father died. Um, and it was horrendous. One of them was just quiet and didn't say a word. Another of them started crying. One of them, the other, the last one started yelling at me. It was this profound experience. And I literally disconnected from medicine. Now, this, I think almost all physicians go through this at some point. You learn to build these walls to protect yourself from all the pain and the sorrow. But the problem is when you build those walls, not only do you not let pain in, you also don't let pain and sadness out. And so that's what that guy meant when he said you couldn't be hurt anymore. It meant that I had become cold enough that I could work for 36 hours straight. I could see the most difficult issues. I could make a split-second decision involving someone's life when I hadn't slept for 31 hours and walk away the next day to fight again. And that was the beginning of a journey to burnout, but also a journey to realizing that this identity of being a physician didn't fit me as well as I always thought it had. But I wonder, not just physicians, Jordan, but I just wonder how many of us in our community are there, are in that point, because I don't think you can just filter out the pain. I think you also filter out the joy, you filter out the feeling, right? I mean, I think it's very difficult to create this colander, to create this sifter that just filters in and out the pain. I think there's this other residual stuff that either comes or doesn't come with it. And I wonder how many of us are just living this life on this treadmill where, hey, I'm getting through it, baby. I'm getting through it. I'm working 30 something hours, but I'm not really here. You know, I'm not really connected. 
I think it's the difference between surviving and thriving. When I went through this burnout in medicine, I, I learned how to survive, but I was far from thriving. It was only when I gave myself the permission to start stepping away from this identity of being a physician that was no longer fulfilling me because it turned out to be a lot of things I never expected it to be that I could start trying to thrive again. But there's a crack that happens in your armor in 2004. I mean, you're alluding to the bigger thing where you you decided to leave. But before that, and I think this is really important in people's financial lives, because this is what I saw as a financial planner, too, is that people, you know, I've been a financial planner forever, but but when I was a financial planner, people would only come to you during these big cracking times, right? When all of a sudden they realize, I can't just survive anymore. I got something else going on. Tell me about what happened that changed you in 2004. Well, on October 25th, 2004, my son was born. And when I held him in my arms right after delivery, I realized how cold and protected I had become. And I knew immediately that I couldn't continue the way I had since that day in the ICU, that I would be keeping the best part of myself locked in and I wouldn't be as much of a loving dad or a loving spouse or a loving family member that that I had to get back to who I was and stop protecting myself because again I was protecting myself from all the bad stuff in the world but also I wasn't letting any of the good stuff out either I clearly realized that the path forward had to be one in which I learned to break some of those walls down with my family and also professionally like I had to learn how to be with my patients again in a way where I wasn't cold, where I could hold their hands, where I could even cry with them at the appropriate times, because that's what being human is. And it was something that I feel like I really lost in my training. What's powerful then is that you're able to then, because you're letting the the world in, you're letting this emotion in, now you're learning from your patients, right? I mean, I feel like for you, this is a whole rebirth where now it's a two-way street. You're helping them with their medical stuff. They're helping you with life. You guys are a team and all of a sudden, it feels like this big change. Kind of to illustrate that, can you tell me about this patient, Sam? Because I feel like there's a lot of lessons we can all learn from this guy. I've met a bunch of different characters, both in my general internal medicine practice. Oh, and I would say Sam is character with a capital C. <laughs> yes, yes. And I've, I've met many characters with a capital C, both in my medical practice and in my hospice work. Sam was a patient I took care of for a long time. And when he was finally diagnosed with a terminal illness, unexpectedly, he kind of looked at me and he looked at his girlfriend. And he's like, well, I don't have time for this. And it was the <laughs> funniest thing because when he finally found out he was dying. I don't have time it, to die. I don't. He's like, I don't have time for this. When he finally found out he was dying, it gave him permission to do the one thing that he had really been putting off, which was to travel. So he was one of those lucky people where he had a terminal diagnosis. There was very little we could do, but he still had a little bit of energy left and a little bit of oomph. And over the next few months, we admitted him to hospice and we would try calling him to make an appointment or have a nurse come to his house and he'd be gone. He'd be like in New Orleans at Mardi Gras. <laughs> I swear to God, the guy took like five or six different trips over the next few months when his girlfriend finally showed up his house and found him not breathing anymore, he had finally passed away. On the side of his bed was a suitcase with like a fresh shirt and a new pair of shoes and all these things. And, you know, euphemistically, Sam was kind of telling us that we always have to have our bags packed. And this really hit home with me. 
because I had sacrificed so much of my emotions, but also my time to becoming a physician. I don't want to have to wait till I'm given a terminal diagnosis to start doing what I want in life. And this was, this was the part of a, an awakening in me along with the birth of my son and eventually along with taking care of hospice patients is that we've got to figure out how to both defer gratification because people who listen to our podcast want to know how to save for retirement and be okay. So we've got to figure out how to do that. But we'd be remiss if we don't also learn how to live for today and start building in purpose and identity into our lives earlier when we can actually have some impact. Like we don't have to be rushing to do the important things when we finally find out we're dying. I love this idea that compounding isn't just about interest, but it really is both, right? I mean, on one end, we need our money to compound, but on the other end, there's this compounding effect of, uh, of, of experiences. And even before we chat about that, I just want to say when I was reading about salmon having this bad pact, but I think the way you termed it was like his favorite shoes and he's got some of his favorite stuff in this bag for his next quote journey and death is just another journey. I just remember going to Egypt recently and these pharaohs, you know, being packed in with all their favorite all stuff, their stuff. Yeah. right? Yeah. Like for me, it'd be like my Xbox, a few of my favorite board games, <laughs> but back to compounding, this is a compounding effect, right? There is this compounding effect of, of joy upon joy upon joy because Sam's joy isn't just his joy. Now it's your joy. And it became my joy hearing this story. And now all the people listening to you and I chat, it's their joy too. Yeah, I think some of it's legacy, right? We talk a lot about legacy and and maybe, you know, we work all our lives and we make all this money and hopefully if we're lucky, it compounds. But what really sometimes interests us are what are the stories that people are going to tell about us after we die? What effect are we going to have on this earth and a lot of times that effect actually has nothing to do with money. It has to do with things that you identified with. It has to do with what you thought your purpose was. And that's what eventually I think affects people around, just like Sam affected me and is now affecting you. It's our dreams and our aspirations. What we held as important actually is that ripple in the ocean that just keeps spreading out over time, even long after we're gone. But the reason this project, I think, uh, Jordan, is so important is because while you say, you know, it's not about money, m money is hugely important to this journey. Your first chapter is called Money is Oxygen. You've got these two competing stories of uh, Charlie and Connor, which I think illustrates the fact that money's oxygen. The story of Charlie and Connor, it's fun to compare them because they tell us two very different things about what we consider enough. Charlie was a guy who had that typical middle-class life in the suburbs, but never saved much. He had kids. Eventually, him and his wife, his wife got Alzheimer's. She needed to stay in a skilled nursing facility. This led, in a sense, to their destitution. They spent all their money doing this. In fact, he had to do what's called a Medicare divorce. So what happens is... One family member wants to apply for Medicaid because they're in a nursing home. It's exceedingly expensive. In order to become part of Medicaid, you have to spend down all your money. You can't have many assets. But if you have a spouse, the spouse still needs money to live. And if you spend down all that ass all those assets so one person can get a Medicaid bed in a nursing home, the other person will have nothing to live on. So people often get divorced so that they can separate assets so that one person can afford the nursing home and the other person can keep some money. Can I, by the way, just, I need to interject for just a second. It is illegal 
in most places for people to advise you to do this. And we are not advising you to do no, this. And no. there are a bunch of hangups. We're just telling you the story of what happened yes. here. Yes. There is no advice. And by the way, it's, it is not simple. And as you're about to hear, there's a bunch of ugliness here. So please, if you've got somebody in this situation, do not think this is a, this is a wonderful strategy. It well, and even, even fact case in point for Charlie, this is devastating to him because he oh, is, it was. Yeah. he's in love with a capital L with this woman who he's been It's his life partner. So he gets this Medicaid divorce. His wife eventually dies. He ends up with very little assets anyway, lives in a completely tiny apartment, is living off Social Security, gets sick himself with congestive heart failure, and really ends up dying at home with hospice with the minimal creature comforts, right? So this guy had love. He had family. He had a very purposeful life. In a sense, he reached what Maslow would call self-actualization. He lived a very full life, but he had almost nothing to comfort him economically when he died, and he died in fairly shabby surroundings. Let's compare that to Connor. Connor was the head of a multi-million dollar company. He had tons of money in the bank. In fact, he had enough money to buy the hospital wing in which he died in, but he was surrounded by family who were worried about who was going to take over the business and what slice of the pie they'd get when he died. Connor died very much alone, but with all the money in the world. And why do these two stories go together? Well, we often traditionally talk about Maslow's pyramid, this idea of our general needs. And the bottom of the period, the basic needs are things like food and shelter and heat and safety. And we often think that we have to start at the bottom build our way through the bottom and then eventually get to the top, which are things like love and self-actualization, etc. I think Maslow had it all wrong. I think Charlie reached the top level of the pyramid, self-actualization, without ever really securing the bottom levels. Whereas Connor had the bottom levels taken care of, he had all the money in the world, but wasn't surrounded by love or meaning or purpose. It illustrates just the fact that we can't wait forever to reach self-actualization, whether you have enough money to buy a hospital wing or, or you're worried about how you're going to put dinner on the table tonight. I think we still need to look at these different important parts of life and work on them in tandem and together. We need to flatten Maslow's pyramid as opposed to trying to do them stepwise. And the reason why is money is like oxygen if you don't have enough all you can really do is think about oxygen, and sometimes we equate that with the very, very lowest levels of Maslow's Pyramid. But once you have enough to breathe, having more oxygen doesn't do a lot for you. In other words, having enough money isn't going to make you happy unto itself. We've also got to figure out the harder stuff. What are our purpose, identity, and connections? Maslow called it self-actualization. If you look at happiness researchers, they'll talk about life satisfaction or emotional well-being. I use the terms purpose, identity, and connections. It doesn't matter what you call it, but we got to start working on that stuff in tandem and together with working on the money instead of saying we got to do the money first and then everything else comes after. Yeah, I love you make the point early on here that... Um it's very easy for money nerds that have the money problem all solved to say, oh, it's not about money. It's about, and yes, it is. <laughs> it, is it is It is totally about the money. If you don't have any, for, for Charlie, the money thing would have been great. For Connor, I can't tell you the number of people. There are people in my own life, Jordan, who I feel like have 
enough money to do whatever they want. And they just seem so bored with life. Like they're searching for this, they're searching for this elixir and they're not finding it because of the fact that the truth in life is really missing, you know, this experience thing. And by the way, they're chasing it in experiences in some cases, and they just feel like these empty experiences where I'm just throwing throwing money at it. And you examine all of these as, as you dive into this more and more about tactics and about what people wish they had more of when they pass away and how to kind of get those and frame these things so that we can, we can do so much better. But it's just, it's so important for us to be thinking about this, not just about more cash, which is so, I don't know. It's so, so big on our ride. The book is called Taking Stock a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth and living a regret-free life available everywhere yesterday. That's weird to say yesterday. How about that? It's been a journey and I am so excited that it's now available for people to purchase. Well, thanks for coming on my friend. And by the way, not just even thanks for this, but just thanks for being such a good friend and compatriot the last couple of years. It is amazing. You know, we had a woman on recently who talked about this idea of an invisible thread between people. And I feel like you and I have had this thread that, um, well, who knows how the heck we came together, but I'm so happy (laughs) for that too. You know, I talk in the book a lot about purpose, identity, and connections. And when you start connecting with what your purpose and identity are, the bonds and connections you make are much stronger. I lived as a physician for decades and had no close physician friends hated hanging out in doctor's lounges, when I realized that my identity was more about communicating, about podcasting and public speaking and writing, the friendships I made, the connections I made were just so much more deeper. And you're a perfect example of that is the interactions I have with you are not like the interactions I ever had with doctors because that identity I was wearing on my outside of being a doctor didn't really match my identity on the inside. And only when I realized my true identity of being more of a communicator, did I start making these type of connections, which have made all the difference in my life because it just makes life feel so much more meaningful in my day-to-day activities. Getting some Charlie and some Connor. Yeah, exactly. I'm Rocky Lalvani, the Profit Answer Man. And when I'm not helping small businesses stack Benjamins for themselves, I'm stacking Benjamins for myself. Big thanks to Jordan for sharing his incredibly personal story and the stories of these people. Oh, gee, it's not about having enough money because like the story he told there at the end, plenty of people have accumulated enough money and didn't have any life. But on the other side, like the counter story, it's also not about just having a life and not having any money. (laughs) Like There's this balancing act between the two a lot of love and people around you and you can't do anything. And it's a frustrating way to end your life. And on the other end, having uh, kids that just don't care because you have uh, shoveled money their way and have not grown together as a family. Also pretty horrible. In a word balance, I guess, huh? Yeah. Well, and I think people think, especially when they first think about financial planning, like how many people say, well, I don't need to do a financial plan because that's for rich people, right? It's for people that need a balance in their life is who a good financial plan is for. People that need today and tomorrow. Freedom from and freedom to is uh, kind of a buzzword that I've picked up lately on this idea. And and it has to be both, right? I mean, it can't be your life pursuit just to accumulate money. And it also can't be the laissez-faire attitude of, oh, I, I'll just... It'll work out. You know, you have to kind of take a little bit of ownership there somewhere in the middle. Doug, you've been diving into this book as well. 
Yeah, I love this book. I think he did a fantastic job. He's clearly speaking from a place of somebody who, you know, has a lot of experience in this. It's done very tastefully, meaningfully. I just I think he he created a great a great read. And you know, maybe it's just where I am and my my place and station in life right now, but getting ready uh, to go. It, it, getting ready to check out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Doug's in the line of the checkout supermarket. <laughs> Circle in the drain. Uh, <laughs> this, but, uh, this book is, though, no, I, I don't think it is where you're at. I mean, I, I don't know where you're going with this, but I found this book way more uplifting than I thought it was going to be. Like, I thought, I'm like, oh, God, the dying. And it's all about living, man. It's all pretty uh, uplifting, upbeat. Like, I love that story told on the show about Sam and having his bag packed. Like, that was just right. Yeah, Sam the the world traveler. Yeah. Um no, I agree. It's but what what I guess where I was going with that is I think it addresses both kind of the balance that OG was just talking about, both the practical side of what you need to do to to get your finances in order so that you can live, the emotional side of it. And and I really think he did a great job on that. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put, Doug, what you value first. Hmm. Rash cream. <laughs> so you can brag to your loved ones more often. Hey, look at all this rash I is going away. could use a good rash cream right now. <laughs> Nothing better at the barbecue than talking about your rash. Uh, it's your loved ones in your time, but being around your loved ones without the rash might make it a little more enjoyable. They're the ones making the rash. <laughs> and that's why they may buy quality term life insurance. Actually simple head to stackybenjamins.com slash Haven life. Now for a free quote, love what they're doing over at Haven life, because it's a modern way to buy life insurance application, simple online, instant coverage decision price is affordable. No waiting several weeks for a decision. Of course they're backed by, Mass Mutual, more than 160-year-old insurer. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to a man named Steve. Hello, Steve. Hi, Joe, OG, and Doug. This is Steve from Peoria, Illinois. Uh, my question to you guys is, I'm 53. I've got um, a sizable chunk of my 401k in a traditional account, and then I have started the last couple years putting 15% in a 401k Roth. So my expectation will be to have about two thirds of my money when I retire at 65 in traditional and about a third will be Roth. My question to you guys is since at 72, I have to start taking out my RMDs. What would be the best plan from 65 to 72? Should I take what I need to live on? minus Social Security and minus a small pension. Uh, I'll probably need two or 3000 a month to live off of. So for those years, until I have to take out my RMDs out of my traditional 401k, what would be the best plan? Should I take it out of the Roth bucket or should I be taking it out of the traditional bucket and pay taxes on it um, as I'm going along? So thanks a lot. And uh, I appreciate the t-shirt too. Thanks. Hey, Steve, thanks for the question. And for people that are new to the show and you're brave enough to send us a voice message, stackybenjamins.com slash voicemail, 
we send you a uh, Stacking Benjamins Haven Lifeline Greatest Money Show on Earth shirt, uh, which is the phenomenal circus <clears throat> tee. Very, very comfortable. Uh, oh, gee, uh, Doug's got something in his throat, so we'll have you go ahead <clears throat> and answer this one. What are you thinking, <clears throat> man? Sorry, I don't. I don't know what happened there. The problem with trying to figure this out 12 years in advance or 17 years in advance, if you kind of count from 65 to 72, is that we're roughly uh, six congressional elections and three presidential elections between here and there. <laughs> and there is a lot of stuff that's going to happen between now and the next uh, dozen years. So I'm going to think about this as if you were 65 today how do I answer it or how do I take these distributions based on the information that we have today? And I think that the, the correct answer is every year is going to be a little different because at 65, you'll have a little pension. Maybe you'll have maybe social security. They'll be thinking about turning that on or off, depending on the value of your investment assets. And if you want to delay that, your spouse may have income or part-time income or, or social security income or pension income as well. If you're, uh, married and or together. And so all of this is going to feed into how much money do I need from my account this year in order to, you know, live the life that I want to live. And based on those calculations and where the tax rates are today would determine where I'm going to take the money from. And I'll give you an example. If I'm right at the next tax bracket, if I've got, you know, 60 or $70,000 worth of taxable income, and and I'm about to bump into the next tax bracket today. I don't know that I would do that and take the money out of the taxable side of the 401k, the traditional side, because those dollars are going to be taxed at a higher rate. Now it's going to affect my Medicare premiums. It's going to affect any other government programs that I may be eligible for. All because the extra money that I needed to live on, that extra 2000 bucks a month, made it look to the IRS that, hey, today I made hundred grand versus saying, well, I can take that money out of my, my uh, Roth side right now and save money on my Medicare, tax, Medicare premiums or save money on my uh, Social Security taxation because it's taxed differently based on how much money you have. So it's, it's almost going to be a year-to-year decision. I think the other thing that you might want to consider over the next 15 years, 12 years, I guess he said he's 53, is developing the bucket that's outside of both of those things. So you've got the Roth side of the 401k, you've got the traditional side of the 401k. They have unique tax benefits today and tax benefits in the future. But I didn't hear you say anything about non-retirement assets, which has the ultimate flexibility of when you get to take the money in or out, uh, no tax benefits, but with that, you get some more flexibility. The other thing that may happen is we're looking at different laws in Congress right now to extend that required minimum distribution time to age 75. So that might not even be a thing when you're 65. It might be 75 by then. So I don't think that you can say at 53, here's what I'm going to do when I'm 65. I don't even think if you're 65 today, you can say, here's what I'm going to do when I'm 67. Because we don't know. What you want to do is over the next decade or decade and a half, is give yourself the flexibility to make sure that you have the choices or have the ability to make the choices based on the information that happens to be relevant that year. So so I love the idea that you're transitioning into the Roth side to build that up. Don't forget that third bucket as well, which is non-retirement assets that you could use as well to supplement your income, again, to kind of manipulate the tax, tax code or tax rates 
year to year as you're able to do that. Yeah, he's an exciting place, OG. Just a a great place to be to build more flexibility into his plan. It's good. And the hard part is, you know, people ask me this all the time. Like, what do you think is better, the pre-tax side or the Roth side? Like, I don't know. Well, what do you think is going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, it's like, how do you know whether or not the money that you put away, you should have been taxed on today or taxed on in the future? You're missing half the variable. You're ha- missing half the information. The information that you're missing is, what is the tax rate 20 years from now when I go to take the money out? It might be half as much as it is today. And then you go, well, darn it. I should have paid taxes in the future. That would have been better for me. Or it might be twice as much. And then you go, darn it. I should have paid the taxes back when I had the money to pay the taxes. And so since we can't predict what the what that's going to look like, I mean, you can guess. You can look at the financial status of the United States and have an opinion about that. But either way, I think it's going to be best just to have an option out of each one of those buckets, pre, post, and no tax and just see what's the best choice, you know, each year. Thanks for the question, Steve. Enjoy building more flexibility into uh, your upcoming retirement plan. Hey, uh, speaking of upcoming, we've got a lot of stuff going on here and want to tell you about all the different resources we have. First of all, If you want to dive deeper into all the topics we talked about today, even if you miss an episode, the 201 is a great way for people that like to read more and dig deeper. StackyBenjamins.com slash 201. That's the number 201. Brooke Miller and I dive deep into lots and lots of different areas on all these topics we talk about today. Of course, our show notes page, super important today, especially if you're somebody that thinks that maybe you could have your public student loans forgiven with this expansion program that ends in October. And I hope we saved a lot of people a lot of money today, not just with that, but with all the things we talked about. But that will be in our show notes page at uh, Stacking Benjamins. Also, if you are on Instagram, you can join us today at five o'clock Eastern. I'm over on Instagram with headlines. Most weeks I talk to a fintech creator. So uh, follow us on Instagram. It's Stacking Benjamins podcast. Just put that in the search and then follow us and you'll get that. And you'll also get also all of the million stories that went around the country talking to uh, 40 different people about their money stories. And we're, we have all of those videos over on Instagram. Uh, what else? I just want to thank everybody who's left us a review for this show. It is uh, always fun to see brand new people joining our audience. And in fact, just looking at the numbers between this year and last year, we are we have about a 40% bigger audience this year than we had last year, which is just incredible and gratifying. And, and um, you know, OG, there's so few people listening to financial podcast or financial talk. And if we can bring more people along for this fun ride and do what Doc G really, I think, put a pin on today, just better for all of us. Bring other people on the journey with you. So- you're saying there are four more people listening to four, us? Four more, yes. It's a pretty amazing. Awesome. Yes. This is a review that's going on Mom's Fridge. Five stars from Brian. Brian says, easy listen that entertains and teaches. I've been listening to Stacky Benjamins for quite a long time now. Only just now thought to leave a review that hopefully will allow more people to find a fun and interesting way to help improve or develop their own personal finance goals. This podcast is entertaining and that allows for a lot of fun humor and banner between the host and guest. Also, the host recommendations advice never tainted by some sort of ploy to help them advance financially. I highly recommend 
adding Stacky Benjamins to your weekly podcast playlist. I think we did specifically, Brian, and not to contradict you, but we did say that if you save 80,000 bucks, we'd be okay with you sending half of it to us. We did do that earlier today. So uh, if people want to, it's perfectly fine. I don't like that review at all. Because it just didn't mention enough, Doug. He never mentioned me at all. He said the the host. By name. Yeah. So, so good. Oh, that's right. He did say the host. That's me. Okay. Yeah. All right. We're good. (laughs) All right. But last but not least, of course, it's not about reviews. It's not about Instagram or a newsletter. It really is about how do you take action and get more done? If you need a better team in your corner, OG and his team are taking clients. Head to stackybenjamins.com slash OG. And that's the first step on your journey to upgrading your team and thinking bigger about your goals, which I think was what Doc G talked about today. All right, Doug, now you got it from here. What should we have learned today? Well, Joe, first, we really only have a limited amount of time, and you can use the wisdom from the dying to utilize yours better. Second, have student loans? If you haven't checked out the forgiveness program that closes soon, rewind the show back to the headline segment, and then head to our show notes to get moving. You're running out of time. But the big lesson... I'm tired of being compared to Tony Bennett. That's why, like Lady Gaga, I'm going platinum blonde. Obviously, that's the way to be successful in the show business. Thanks to Doc G, otherwise known as Jordan Grummet, for joining us today. His book, Taking Stock, a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life, is available anywhere the living people shop for books. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2022, and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Repine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch, with help from Joe, me, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen to our show, check out the 201 Deep Dives, written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. You'll find the 411 on all things money at the 201. Just go to stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So, say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. Both she and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. To join all The Basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at The Stacking Benjamin Show. Not only should you not take advice from these dorks, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor.
Oh, gee, listener Mike wanted uh, to hear more about the terminal list because, and I think he actually was more interested in you and Doug fighting. And I actually wrote back to him that I can't wait to watch it just so I piss, just so I piss one of you two guys off. Like I'm going to agree with I one or the that. other and we'll, I thought that was we'll a go great down response. the yeah. rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. I saw that too. I think I'm, I'm one for two on Doug recommendations though, because I think you really like the, uh, the old man. I love the old man. Yeah, you are. You're batting 500, man. That's pretty good. I did pretty pretty good on that one. People in our Facebook group have talked about how good that series is. Though I will say I didn't love how they ended season 1. Like it wasn't it wasn't even a cliffhanger really. You weren't sure. Wait, is that a wrap? Was there another episode coming? But I love that show. Is it one of those series that's fantastic but they just can't figure out how to end it? I don't know if I would even say that. It was just it was almost like they weren't expecting it the that episode seven to be the last episode before they went to season two. It was it was just stopped. Uh, well, I do know that they recorded some of it pre COVID. Yes. Well, and so before Jeff Bridges got have... massively sick, both with COVID and with oh, what was the other he like MS stomach cancer or something. It was big. Yeah, it was. He, he was. It was amazing that he came back and finished recording the the second half of season one. Jeez. If you know that that happened and you look at whatever, like episode four on, you can see he's a little different than he was in the beginning. I want to talk uh, briefly about this movie that I saw uh, yesterday that um, was a little movie in the theaters. Ethan Hawke is in it and it's called The the Black Phone. I'll be home in the morning. Where are you going? I'm staying over at Susie's tonight. The snow. The fire. The papers call him the grabber. I wish you wouldn't call him that. You don't actually believe that story, do you? Because he can't hear you, and he doesn't really take kids that safe. Oh, you goof. Well, isn't that just peachy king? You need some help? You see that? Yeah. <laughs> Would you hand me my hat? Yes, sir. I am a part-time magician. Are those black balloons in there? Would you like to see a magic trick? I have an announcement to make. One of our students, Finney Blake, was abducted. This is uh, really sad because this is another one of those movies that gives a bad name to part-time magicians and panel trucks. Like, if you can't be a part-time magician and own a panel truck anymore, because they constantly get typecast as somebody who steals kids and uh, puts them in a basement and tortures them, which is what this, this was it movie... Josh Gad. Was that who the bad guy is? Ethan Hawk. Ethan Hawk is the grabber, oh. which true story was Doug's nickname in high school. <laughs> so I thought uh, it sounded like Josh Gad. And I was like, boy, that's a, that's a shift from being Olaf. That would be a shift. frozen. <laughs> hey, <laughs> yeah. No, Ethan Hawke does a fantastic job of being diabolical. Like he does, I feel like in all his roles, he just brings it. I th This was presented to me as a horror movie and I hate horror movies, but we had a bunch of people just wanted to go see something different than, you know, the same Marvel crap that you see all the time. And so we went to the theater. This is not a horror movie. This is just a thriller. There was one spot where Cheryl straight up blood curling uh, scream that woke up the entire theater. And, and it's just this huge, scary part. But in terms of blood, there's not much blood. There's not much gore. It is just this story about these kids 
going missing and then our hero kind of goes missing and uh, the supernatural powers that kind of help him uh, try to get back and uh, find his way. Uh, so, so, so scary Th- thrillery. Yes. Uh, big thumb up for this movie. I was very surprised. I got done and I was like, that movie was nowhere near as scary as I thought it was. And the plot was better than I thought it was. And I'm following the story of these, these kids living in the eighties, you know, living with bullies and living with a dad who might or might not be there. Like there's all these really good themes and, um, man, big thumb up for the black phone. Big thumb up where? <laughs> oh, just like um, up in the air in general, like, yay, we like it. Okay, I get it. Yes. I get it. Yes. So it's set in the 80s, so it's Stranger Things without the sci-fi. You know what's funny? It, it uh, Yeah, but there's not the super, they're not fighting the supernatural right. stuff. So it's Stranger Things without the, it's 80s and it's kids going missing. It's 80s and kids going missing. With great music. Uh, no, actually, there isn't much great music with a diabolical serial killer. Hard pass. Yeah, so if you add a diabolical serial killer <laughs> to, to the, what, what if, redeeming qualities are there in this movie? Doug, if you change most everything, it's exactly like Stranger Things. I knew it. Nailed it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, what's funny is, is I read a few uh, reviews afterwards and um, this movie, because so many people actually went and saw it was uh good news for nope which open which i also want to go see the new jordan peele movie i think looks really good yeah i don't get jordan peele movies i mean i've only seen one other one but i'm like what are you trying yeah, to be? get out is this a comedy yeah get out is this a comedy is it a horror movie what are you it's like you don't know what you want to be when you the writers it's a couldn't horror movie it and social commentary and uh campy um, i heard him on an interview recently talking about how comedy and horror are not that removed you know that that it's a good place where you can suspend disbelief so he's trying i think to do both is your your answer it didn't work for me i didn't like it out but uh actually when you were something you said about the phone is that what that horror or the thriller was called the phone with ethan the black phone the black phone something you said about that though reminded me of another show we watched and we don't have to go into depth on this but would highly recommend this documentary called the girl in the picture want to say that's netflix girl in the picture true story you know, documentary about a a murder and uh it just keeps getting weirder and weirder and weirder so highly recommend well stackers the show is over but the party is just beginning here you know why because it's military appreciation month and we are giving out shout outs to all of our friends who have served in the military and let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend og who spent time in the military and of course we know what a giver he is even when he pretends like he's being uh, mr surly navy federal offers member only exclusive rates discounts and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals visit navyfederal.org celebrate and you'll see all their military appreciation month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.